Welcome to Revere Assets, Your Money, with Danny Stewart. You never know how far the stock is going to go down. Tim Razor. Danny knows I'm a geek for all of this stuff. And Don Vandenborg. Telling it like it is. If you're seeking the best stock knowledge this side of Wall Street, you've come to the right place. I'm sorry, did I steal your stuff? No, you didn't steal any thunder. Who's handling this segment? (laughs) For the next hour, Danny, Tim, and Don will be talking investing. Investing is 90% psychological, and I love that. Trades. The market will usually overshoot to the downside and to the upside. And dumpster fires. Because it doesn't matter what you think or what I think, and it matters even less what Danny thinks. And now, here's your hosts... Danny, Tim, and Don. I can finally wear a long sleeve shirt and a vest. It is finally. Fall slash winter in northern Texas. Now, we say fall slash winter because it's kind of together, and it can last anywhere from two to three weeks all the way to two or three months, and it can even get an ice storm or a snow flurry for a week or two and then be 85 degrees the next week or two and then go back cold, so you never really know. It's not like where Don is where it's beautiful and sunshine the whole time. That's the southern half of Texas. The southern half of Texas, it never snows once every 30 years or so maybe, okay? But northern Texas, we actually have the seasons. They're just very, very abbreviated. So we have our fall slash winter, so I'm actually wearing a long sleeve shirt. A vest is kind of nice. Next week, I'll probably have my golf shirt on again. I I promise you, you'll see. But anyway, welcome to Your Money Radio, folks. I'm going to talk, I was going to originally talk about the yield curves, the T-bills, the uh, five to six month is where where the sweet spot of that yield curve is for the prime, like investment grade bonds, the biggest companies, the prime rate, that's around 6%, the muni bond rate. Uh, anyway, but but if the team wants to talk about that along with equity discussions, I was going to go ahead and let them do that. Uh, I, I put some articles on the mailbag that's, that's very interesting, and you can go read those. Um, there are three articles on the new uh, fiduciary rule. Remember, I've been telling you for a couple years now, they're trying, the DOL, the Department of Labor, is trying to wrap their head and trying to make these commission salesmen these brokers and insurance agents, they're trying to make these commission salesmen fiduciaries, right? And, and, and here's the problem. Here's the real problem. The broker dealers and the insurance companies, if they are actually truly labeled a fiduciary, now you introduce class action lawsuits. They, they lose their ability to go to arbitration. They, they like the arbitration. That gives them an edge. So now we know where the lobbyists stand. Now we know the broker-dealers. The, so the Department of Labor, the government's trying to hold them a little bit more accountable, and they're trying to, to they want to call themselves fiduciaries while they sell you a bunch of commission products. Anyway, it's an interesting article. Go out and read it. It's very good. Um, and then finally, and here's really where I want to get into before I segue into the markets, I saw this article that, quite frankly, made me a little nauseous. And it says, finally, there's still hope for ESG sustainable investing. There's still hope, folks. It's not dead yet. 
please, man, take a take a stake, get a get a ha- drive a hammer in that heart, take the silver bullet. Let's put it out of its misery. Look, I'm all for green investing, but the way that it's being done. It's actually very political. And by the way, so we're talking about green investing, uh, uh, ESG investing. BlackRock just made a $500 billion uh, investment in Oxy and their Oxy Petroleum. So they're, and they're the big, big um, 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 ESG investing company. But anyway, I'm, I want you, I'm going to read this article. I'm going to quickly do it. And I want you to read these, these words, these adjectives and, and, and adverbs and feel and see if you can feel how they might just might be trying to push you in a direction. Is this article just trying to give you information or is it telling you what you need to think? Just a question. All right. Uh, rampant ESG political discourse, rising concerns about, oh, I'm sorry, let me start off a little higher. If you're an RIA, a registered investment advisor like us, that feel client inquiries regarding ESG and investing and sustainable investing are falling off, you're probably right. Rampant ESG political disclosure, rising concerns about greenwashing, meaning saying you're green, but you're really not, and worries about performance, because they underperform often, uh, about ESG uh, against the backdrop of rising rates and factors um, um, are weighing on on the client's once fervent enthusiasm. They were fervently loving it. Now, uh, Jeffrey Klein, Tom Schwab was saying uh, the stocks, and this is one reason they're struggling in these green green sectors, their leverage ratio is 3.8 compared with just 1.1 of the five biggest energy companies. So in other words, these green energy companies, they have huge borrowing and huge leverage. So they have more risk, okay? So basically he's saying that uh, the higher interest rates, the higher cost of financing, the political concerns and worries about performance are all causing this um, ESG investing to get pushback. It says all of the factors and points are true, however, this doesn't imply that advisors can take their eyes off the ESG ball or that clients won't renew their infinity for this style of investing. Actually, it's like they will again flock to ESG and sustainable investment options, and that could happen sooner rather than later. So he's telling you it's coming. Okay, Advisors need to be prepared for the potential groundswell for ESG investing. Okay, Don, be ready. Anyway, so it says ESG aggressing still in place. For all the criticisms, ESG investing, the data suggests that it's still attracting capital. Folks, the regulators and the big boys like BlackRock are priming the pump. They're forcing capital in there. That's why it's attracting capital. Okay, now, um, it said... um, um, indicated that their interest in sustainable, that if demographics follow through on its intention to invest, meaning the younger generation, there will be likely greater uh, demand for it. It also, government regulations will further ESG investing uh, for the lobbyists. Okay, now it said, uh, uh, so he's saying there's other reasons uh, to, to like ESG investing. Uh, those include more robust uh, regulations, more robust ESG corporate disclosures, uh, meaning they are s- specific and standardized. And um, now 
Now he goes to the criticism, so he tries to give it a little bit of like it's a fair and balanced report. While there's ample criticism of ESG investing, and rightfully so, advisors should not get bogged down in the political debate. Um, that's a guarantee to put off some clients. Um, some clients are unlikely to ever warm up to ESG investing, and other clients embrace it. So he's saying don't get on the political spectrum. Uh, uh, plenty of surveys confirm uh, that many par participants remain enthusiastic I'd like to see how they worded those questions. Anyway, uh, here you are implying that uh, if you, so here's the whole point, folks. They are implying here in this article that, that you've got to do this ENG investing and you're missing the ball if you don't. Uh, he says, additionally, advisors should expect ESG investing uh, to evolve, and this could generate even more uh, interest among clients. The urgency for even more capital to scale to finance innovative, sustainable solutions is clear. As companies race toward net zero energy transition and demand uh, grows on finance, to finance additional and interrelated issues to global economies such as gender equity or ocean conservation. That was by Morgan Stanley. So that's it, folks. There's urgency and vitalness, and you simply must accept ESG investing. Now, does it sound like a lobbyist to vote th uh, wrote this? Actually, it was Advisorpedia. Advisorpedia wrote this. Do some research, find out who owns them. They used to be a good website where you could go and put in your information. And I, like I, as an advisor, I'd go answer stuff about retirement planning, complex estate planning, wills, trust, tax questions, a stock question. But then they were bought by an advisor, a, a big money manager, okay? And so now they own all of that content that I, that I put in there. I can no longer go answer these questions for people, but they look like they're a non-biased, good source of research when in fact, they're actually writing articles for the sell side, for Wall Street, for commissioned advisors, basically to sell to you, to sell products and ideas to you. Anyway. I just read that article and it really, really made me, um, I don't know, just skeptical. All right, now let's go to the mailbag if I can find it because this is uh, perfectly leads into the markets. I do want to get, get straight into the markets. So this is on 11.1. Uh, Dear Don, would love to hear about Team Revere discuss the mechanics of building progressive exposure, how to choose what to buy. It's not, a, you know, the market's been up for five days. How do you pick stocks that aren't extended? Now, Don actually did. I sent this email to Don, so he saw it. And that very night, or maybe the next night, he actually did an entire nightly video um, uh, related to that subject. So if you want it, just send me an email. And I'll be happy to send Friday you a link. Friday night's video. Friday night's video. Okay. Last, now, fr last Friday night's video. Okay. Now, this is the perfect mailbag question for our topic today and how to manage portfolios because the market started really getting strong and we started getting some a strong uptrend. You had four, five, six days in a row. The market was up. Mark was up. And we were looking for a pullback. We got a two-day pullback. Now, it was kind of harsh, hurts a little bit, kind of stings. Does it mean the uptrend's intact? Are we breaking down? So with that backdrop, this is on 11.6. Hi, Don. In my current quest to understand markets, enhance my trading skill set, and refine my technical skills, I'm looking back on the portfolio. And in one trade in particular, 
Uh, that would be our Bison SSO, purchased over a period of some weeks in May. Average cost $50.69, from what I can tell. We held the shares until recently. If I'm wrong, please let me know because it will render my rest of my email invalid. Looks like we rode SS up to the top 62-ish, which time was a large bearish engulfing candle. Uh, we were up around 22% on average SSO. After that, uh, somehow slow, steady grind down. MACD crossed and RS was, RSI was weakening. Uh, was there a reason you didn't sell a portion of uh, shares into strength? From everything I read, you want to take profits after 10%, then raise a stop to break even. I also noticed that we sold only after it dropped below the 200-day moving average. I thought once we were below the 50, you scaled back risk proportionally to guard against a continued sell-off. Can you please show, share with me Revere's sell methodologies and what you were thinking and why you held SSO? Uh, Don, hi, KC. You always have great questions. She actually does. Uh, treat uh, SS. That sounded bad, actually. She actually does. I didn't mean it like that, KC. I just meant uh, we get some um, questions that are questionable, but you always have very, very good questions. We treat SSO as a core S&P 500 position, which has different target sizes depending on market health, as shown below. Don's going to bring up that chart as we speak. And then I said... It definitely hurts seeing gains evaporate, but, but, but it's part of, this is Don's answer, but it's part of our time-tested process and falls under the rule the market doesn't get into serious trouble unless it's below the 200-day simple moving average is broken. It's not foolproof as we got shaken out this last time, this last piece, right at the 2ATR, average true range level, before the market bounced. We re-entered using XPXL. So this is my comment, my thoughts. Reminds me of the phrase, it's okay to be wrong, it's not okay to stay wrong. Uh, the market bounced right, right after breaching these levels and reclaiming. And as you will see, some when you get around the 200-day moving average, folks, you're going to have some false starts that fail, and you're going to have some false breakdowns, which is what we may be having right now, that actually the market pulls back for a couple, three days, and then goes right back up. The trick is interpreting the probabilities on the right side of the chart before it's happened, not the left side. Now, before Don goes over that, before I turn it over to the team, I wanted to um, make a couple comments. So, so it's very easy. And, and, and look, I'm not, I'm not criticizing or doing anything like that. When you're in the heat of the battle in real time, it's tough and it's hard and it's emotional and scary. When you're looking back, it's much easier and it's much easier to pick out things and they're more obvious. So with hindsight, it's much better. A lot of times it's a very good, it's hard to do because the emotions aren't there. The losses, the gains, your, your portfolio changing value isn't affecting you. You can do it. But if you look at where you see that change and then you look back, if you can block that out and go back and look before that and try to determine what decision would you have made at that time. But in any event, Don has rules. The team has rules for individual stock positions and then the portfolio as a whole. So with that, Don, go ahead. Yeah, I have this uh, chart up that I included in the email reply, and this is basically our allocation rules. We split the management of the portfolio in half. Half of it goes to uh, a core uh, position in either the NASDAQ 100, but usually the S&P 500, 
and also into T-bills. And we manage that via leveraged SSO, uh, leveraged ETF products. And uh, SSO was specifically what was mentioned in the email and then the purchase of SPXL after we got shaken out. So uh, these are the various ceilings and floors that we use for that S&P 500 exposure, depending on where uh, where the S&P 500 is trading relative to various moving averages. So basically we target a 60% uh, position. That would be 30% SSO is equal to 60% S&P 500. Uh, and we kind of stick with that unless we break below the 30-week and 50-day moving average. This is a Stan Weinstein line and it works very well. Very frequently you find support around that area. But if you don't find support there and you go down to the 200-day moving average, we start to reduce. So between the 150 and the 200, we drop it back to 0.5. If you start to break below the 200-day moving average, we break it. Uh, we start to break it back uh, to 0.4. And then this 2ATR line is uh, just giving it enough room. Ideally, uh, you bounce or you undercut at this spot. We bounced, we dropped it to down to zero, and then we had the Fed uh, FOMC meeting uh, two days later, and we got a follow-through day on there, and we started to, note the asterisk here, add back on reclaim with short-term moving averages, and that's what we ended up doing uh, with SPXL. So... Yeah, never, uh, never like giving back gains, and we don't give back big gains in individual stocks like this, but we treat the core index position differently than we treat individual names. And also when we broke below the 50-day moving average, we trimmed back nearly all of our individual stock exposure uh, and uh, let the kind of let the market decide what the next move was going to be. In this case, uh, kind of been pointing this out recently, the market did this three waves down before it started bouncing, uh, where I have marked here, that was the follow through day. Uh, we closed right below the 200 day moving average. The next day we gapped up and we started putting the position back on as we got back above the green line here, which is the 21 day moving average. So we started adding it in here uh, and we're consolidating that move uh, up in here. We're back up to uh, 50%, a 0.5 beta on our um, individual S&P 500 exposure. And we're up to about 0.7 in individual names as they've been uh, acting pretty well since the follow through day. Okay, so, so what, that's the reason. Yeah, one thing I want to add, I want to clarify one thing you said, because it's it's very, I just want to make sure it didn't, it didn't go unnoticed when you said that we started breaking some of those levels and you took off individual names. So folks, what he's saying is that S and P may be the core position. And so we gave up gains on that, but some of the other stocks were, we took gains or, or, or minimized losses somewhere else in the portfolio. So it's a portfolio as a whole, not just individual positions. Yeah. We also kind of, We'll stop buying to stop yes. adding exposure as the market looks like it's going to go into a, a corrective uh, right. stance. Right, right. Okay. Never, never uh, like giving back big gains, but uh, like I said, it's part of the core position. And then we've got rules down here 
uh, to re-enter it. And that's what we did right away when we got back above. So yeah, we missed out on some gains by continuing to hold it uh, in hindsight, if we'd have sold it back up here, but hindsight's always 2020. So we've, we've got uh, rules in place for everything that we do here. And um, this one just uh, didn't work to our benefit in this case. But again, like you said, it's okay to be wrong. It's not okay to stay wrong. And the rules yeah, back. And the rules will keep you out of trouble and keep you from not guessing. Not guessing. Yeah, this, this rule getting getting out, the exit below the 200-day moving average is designed to keep you out of those, uh, the bear market chart that I show all the Major time. Major bear market, right. Major bear markets, right. I'd rather, you know, lose 2 or 3% in, in order to give up the two to three percent opportunity cost, then uh, give up, uh, so, you know, twenty percent on a bear market. So you may give up some gains, but you're not going to get big losses. I mean, that really is the right. uh, okay. All right, go ahead. Sorry, that's it. That's All right, well, yeah, let's let's go to the markets and talk about what you're saying and what the what the guys are thinking. Yeah, I'll tell you, I'll save the market commentary till the end. Let's uh, go over to Michael to start off his uh, his uh, presentation <clears throat> this week. This week, I'm going to do something a little different, actually. I'm going to uh, talk about something a little more theoretical. It was something I heard in a podcast that resonated with me and I thought was really interesting. So I wanted to share it on this podcast. But um what it is, is uh, essentially, I'm going to get into very briefly evolutionary biology just by mentioning a concept of survival of the fittest. And what's interesting about that concept is that it's really at the, uh, at the species level rather than the individual. So if you take humans, for example, we're not the fittest individually speaking on any dimension. And what really makes humans special and, and, and there, there, there's a reason why I'm mentioning this. It, it, it'll go somewhere. But what makes humans special and the reason why we're at the top of the food chain and we've done so well is because at the species level, we have something called cooperation and language. And what that all does is it allows us to trust one another. And that's the most important thing. It's that as a species, we, we have trust. And we've, yeah, because of language and cooperation, we're able to establish that. So... Something interesting is a way that you can quantify the level of trust involved in cooperation is the blockchain. And if you take the blockchain and, for example, Bitcoin, they're all called trustless networks. So what you have is you're basically creating your technology as, as a means of exchange that doesn't require trust. And if you take a look at that and you quantify you, you can really quantify exactly how much energy needs to be consumed to duplicate that trust. So in a sense, it means that the, the efficiency of trust requires X amount of energy to substitute it. So you got to burn a lot of carbon, a lot of electricity to generate a lot of electricity and a system to substitute something very simple like trust. And trust is an incredible source of efficiency in particular in business. And the reason why I mention it is because we work in a system where I trust you, you trust me, and it's really it's really incredible and taken for granted how efficient something like trust really is. If you take, for example, due diligence on a transaction, you've got investment bankers and consultants all charging heavy fees 
so that they can give their opinion on something so that each party trusts each other more. So that's a cost of trust there as well. And that's something you can view with crypto. So in essence, what you got to think about is that system more efficient? I don't believe so. And the reason why I'm mentioning this is because there's a lot of concern that the finance industry is going to be completely replaced by artificial intelligence and blockchain. And my response to that is, is really having trusted individuals that you work with, whether it's between the client and the company or at the company level is a way more efficient and way better way of doing things. So in my opinion, I, I don't see the, the, the blockchain and cryptocurrency be, being this huge uh, replacement factor. Um, so I, I just thought that was really interesting. And yeah, it, it just all comes down to trust and, and uh, it's a cool way to quantify trust. Um, well, I, I, Michael, so now, something, yeah. I, I will tell you, I do think they'll use the blockchain technology for the digital dollar because they'll be able to track you. They, they want to be able to track. They don't want private transactions. They want, they want everything oh, yeah, public. Yeah, so, yeah. so they get the tax. So it may not be a Bitcoin or maybe not be a crypto, but they'll use that blockchain technology. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. The, I mean, it'll it'll be implemented, but in terms of replacing people, I, I, I don't see oh, that yeah, happening. Yeah. I think it'll just be, yeah. Yeah, way to in, enhance what we what we already do. But uh, so something else I wanted to talk about briefly, and I'm actually going to be making some some videos for the Revere University and getting into each of the separate topics. But I wanted to talk about fundamental analysis because a lot of people throw out the word, oh, I'm doing fundamental analysis or oh, I'm doing my due diligence. But what is fundamental analysis really? And I feel like perhaps our audience, a lot of people don't don't even know what it means. Uh, so fundamental analysis is really, it's a way of measuring what a company's actually worth by examining, you can examine related economical and financial factors. And fundamental analysts, what, what we do is we study anything that can affect the value of a security. And that could be things like the state of the economy or the industry to really specific things about the company like the company's management what's their tracker how are they how are they what what decisions are they making how are they using their their capital at the company and there are a lot of quantifiable things but there's also a lot of qualitative things that that really it takes a lot of experience and, and industry analysis to to fully understand which is why you've got analysts even at the market level on, on the index and the company level where they've got all different price targets because they're looking at different factors and, and making different assumptions based on, on their own qualitative uh, beliefs. So really there's a few different ways to do this and this is what I'll make the videos on, but um, you've got comparable companies. So you can look at an industry and look at different companies within that industry and say, okay, one company's trading at a certain price to earnings level. Another one's trading at a certain price of sales. They've got the sales growth, the revenue, uh, the earnings growth, cash flows, whatever it is. And you can make a comparison and see which ones you think are maybe undervalued or overvalued and, and purchase or sell based off of that. Then you've got something else like precedent transactions. So recently we spoke about, we spoke about uh, Exxon purchasing Pioneer resources. So you can look at transactions and M&A activity going on in an industry look at other companies and say, okay, well, based on the synergies, this is an acquisition target, or this is a company that, that should be trading at a higher value than what it's currently valued at because another company, they just bought another company worth X amount of dollars. So it, it, it should reflect um, that value. 
And then you've got things that are a little more complicated, such as DCF models, which stands for discounted cash flows, where you basically try to you try to model out how much a company is going to be earning in the future, and then you you bring that back to what that's worth today. And I'll go through and explain the different types of ways of doing that. But yeah, I just wanted to to explain a little bit about uh, fundamental analysis and different ways of doing it. Well, Mike, I just, I just, I I, I just want you to tell me which companies are undervalued and are about to go up pretty soon and will get a short squeeze so I can make lots of money. That's, that's what I want to (laughs) know. All right, Don. That's what we all want to know, right? (laughs) All right, Don. All right. Thanks, Mike. Let's turn it over to Connor, who's got uh, an interesting topic this week. Yeah. So this week I wanted to talk about uh, power earning gaps. I mentioned it before, but I thought it'd be a great week to talk about them because we've really seen a complete 180 in the market. Um, We've had so many good reactions to earnings and uh, many stocks are trading up on the print and falling through to the upside. So I've got three names today that um, have been some of my favorites in this earning seasons, and we can look at the action and, and what characteristics they had. So yeah, first one is DraftKings. This one, they had a 39% earning surprise, not profitable yet, but um, trying to become profitable. And they gapped out of a nice weekly base. As you can see, it was moving sideways, a little bit choppy, but that's that's the great thing about earnings gaps. It's, you know, people are caught off sides. Um, they see a good earnings report and they realize they might've missed something. So they're gonna wanna get in. And this gapped up 16% on 317% above average volume. And as you can see, since that report, it's just been grinding higher, has not broken the AEMA and has just been trending beautifully. Next one is, uh, you can go to DAC. This was another great one. I mean, this one had an awesome daily chart before it broke out. As you can see, it was forming a nice base. And if you go to the weekly, it it was really set up. They had a 53% earnings surprise and a 79% increase from the previous quarter. And again, this showed a lot of volume and power on that. On day one, it gapped up 19% on 300% above average volume. And it's been surfing the shorter term moving averages ever since. So complete 180, like I said. It's key to follow day two, day three, day four, because, you know, if a stock just gaps up on earnings and the next day it's all the way down, then that doesn't really mean anything. Institutions aren't trying to get position into the stock likely. And last one, this one was yesterday. This is arguably my favorite one that I've seen this quarter. This is Duolingo. This is a, this really checked a lot of boxes. It was up 21% on 400% above average volume. It broke out of a huge base on the highest volume ever. And it also uh, cleared those IPO highs. And as you can see, it's having a good day today, falling through to the upside and relative strength line, new highs, um, really checks all the boxes. And especially with this one, we haven't seen many names clearing their IPO base. Um, So this is a positive, it's new merchandise. And just to recap some things that, you know, you want to look for when these are occurring is 
First thing is volume. They, they've got to have high volume, preferably above 300%, because if it's low volume, then big money isn't, isn't taking the trade. And as you'll find out, the more you track these, the ones that are gapping up on low volume more times than not, they'll trace the move. You can't trust the move. Day. Yeah, can't trust yeah, the move. can't trust. And uh, another thing is, as you can see in all three examples, all these stocks are gapping out above all key moving averages and kind of out of bases. Some aren't the cleanest, but they're all coming out of a period of consolidation. And that's one thing that I always prefer is you you want it above all key moving averages. If a stock's been down 90% and it gaps up 25, 30%, but it's still below the 200 day, well, that's not telling you much. And in all three <laughs> of these cases, it was it was just power above all these moving averages and they start to slope up and the last thing is you, you want to see some earnings surprise uh guidance new product um something said on the conference call that excites investors that you know it th doesn't necessarily have to mean that they have to make money that's a plus of course but a lot of times they may be um returning to profitability soon um, and in their conference call, the CEO said something very, very bullish, very positive. That's that's forward looking that people can get excited about because the market's always forward looking. So and and at the end of the day, the reactions just really all that matters. You can have a stock give the best earnings report ever. But if the if the reaction isn't good, then well, clearly something's wrong under the hood. So. Yeah, those are three awesome earnings gaps this quarter, and hopefully they can continue. Uh, this has been super positive for the market and and good to see some excitement on earnings from investors. Yeah, that line that you mentioned that uh, it breaking above the IPO base, that means everybody that has ever bought this stock is is and held it has made money on it. There are no no losers. Uh, the point that Connor made that sometimes if you see something 50% down and it gaps up 20% on earnings, there are a ton of people that are very happy to sell it into that move because they're recouping some of their money. In this case, nobody is selling because they're recouping their money. They're all at a profit. Uh, there are some people that I know that only trade systems, that they only trade stocks that make new all-time highs. Uh, and uh, a good counter to this DUOL is they don't not all gaps up on big volume work. Look at uh, a firm yesterday, AFRM, gapped out of a base next day down 8.83%, almost giving back the entire move. Uh, and if you look at a monthly chart on this, this is kind of what I'm talking about. All of these people in here that bought a firm are very happy to get out and start recouping some of their. Uh, money if they held it the whole way down. So while you look at a daily chart in this, you think, hey, all-time highs, that's great. No, scale back, look at a monthly chart. Everybody that bought up here, this was once a $180 stock. It's gapping up. It's only $23 now. So big difference between what's going on with a firm and what's going on with DUOL. Uh, good stuff there, Connor. Uh, Ted. Teddy 10 charts, not quite 10 charts, but uh, some great charts nonetheless, and some interesting changes in what's going on with the overall view in the market. Ted, you want to take it away? 
Yes, sir, Don. So would you want me to go after you since mine's more of a supplement or it doesn't really matter? Nah, you go ahead. Okay. So as you know, in the last two weeks, we had a follow-through day um, on the S&P 500 followed by an accumulation day. And then on the NASDAQ, we, we saw even more power. We had back-to-back follow-through days and then the third accumulation day. So clearly this, this new rally is definitely a bit different than the one we had in August and October as we quick, quickly saw distribution um, following the follow-through days. And in this rally, we avoided distribution after the first five days. So that significantly increases the probabilities of this being successful. And we decided that it's quite repetitive and futile to talk about breath every week if there aren't any significant changes, but this week there definitely are. So here we go. In the net highs and lows, we finally saw a, pe- a little peak of net highs in the New York Stock Exchange and definitely a dry up in new lows. So that's definitely a good indication. Just shows that stocks are stopped, are done going down, at least for now. Um, we definitely want to see these numbers gradually increase higher as we as this uptrend manifests itself. In the NASDAQ, definitely a little bit weaker. We didn't hit that net high territory yet in this new up in, in this new uptrend. Yesterday, following distribution day, we expanded in new lows. So we definitely want to see that dry up in the next few days and avoid more distribution. Here, the NASI is definitely a significant change. We broke above the 10-day moving average on the NASI, as well as the NASI RSI crossing back above 30 for the first time and staying back above 30. And we're headed actually into the overbought territory, which near market lows or market bottoms in the new uptrend, we actually do want to see overbought conditions persist, just like in the last um, uptrend in in the summer. So continue on for the percent of stocks above the 50-day, 150-day, and 200-day, we also saw a notable change that we broke the downtrend line on all three indicators. And now, as you can see, I talked about how we had a divergence between the percentage of stocks above the 200-day and 150-day with the NASDAQ's price action, and that definitely led to this 10% plus correction. But now when you just take a quick look at the indicators, they kind of look similar on, on first glance, and that's what we want to see. And Ideally, we want to see, obviously, this rally continue and then breath in the percentage of stocks above key move and average continue going higher as well. On the sentiment front, this, we had extreme bearish sentiment following the shakeout below the 200-day move and average. As you can see, fear and greed was probably hit below levels of the March banking crisis and near levels of the bear market bottom. And... Although technical analysis can't exactly be used on this, on this um, indicator, this indicator is, com- um, is combined like with various technical indicators that create this fear and greed index. So I did draw a downtrend line here. It just shows the change in character as well. And we're still in that fear territory, which is exactly what we want to see um, as markets often climb a wall of worry. The AII, we hit 50% bearish levels well above average and now following this uptrend we're back below average so hopefully um, we might have to see some cooling down a digestion here on the indexes to bring that bearish level perhaps back up a little bit and that bullish level back down and then finally same whipsaw action with the NAM the N-A-A-I-M we dipped below near the um, near the October lows bear market lows 
and how we snap back on this rally. And so in conclusion, we see that breath continues to improve and the index is so far avoiding distribution besides yesterday's day. Um, we want to see stock continue to hold, like Connor said, these power earnings gaps are working, which is a good first indication that appetite is coming back in the markets. Um, we want to see stocks continue to build out their bases, resist pullbacks, um, and and see that continue. And Don will definitely give give a better picture of the markets. Breath is at the end of the day still a secondary indicator. Thanks, Ted. Folks, listen, I, I want you to understand why that fear and greed indicator is a contrarian indicator and why you want people still bearish or still pessimistic when you think it's time to invest. Because if everybody's bullish, they're already fully invested or, or heavily invested. There's not a lot of cash to be put to work. If people are very bearish, that means they've raised some cash. They're scared. And if they think things are improving, they'll start putting money to work. And as things continue to improve, they'll continue to put money at work. So at extreme bullishness, everybody's already pretty much invested. So it just takes a few sellers. At the bottom, when everybody's bearish, it just takes a few buyers to get the market moving in the opposite direction. So I just want to put that in layman's terms. Don? Yeah, let's uh, talk about the current state of the market right now. So if you've been watching the videos, you know very clearly what uh, happened last Wednesday with uh, Jay Powell being a little bit dovish and the market taking that and running with it. Uh, having a NASDAQ follow-through day on Wednesday, another follow-through day on Thursday, which also included a follow-through day on the S&P 500, and then a gap up on Friday. And now all week we're consolidating those gains, which is uh, markets don't go straight up. You have to have uh, some sideways action to work off that overbought condition. We had a little bit of a scare yesterday with a weak bond auction. But really what we're looking for is a move ahead of this area right here. So like the high 4300s uh, and above 4400. You can see we battled around that area back in June before breaking to new highs. That area held on the pullback in August before we started going higher. But really what that area was, was the beginning of the first leg down. And then 4400 held uh, beginning the pullback before it gave way. We uh, rallied back up to this 43, right below 4,400 uh, area before we started the third leg down, and we're pausing at this area right now. So if you go to uh, a 30-minute chart, uh, well, let's go to a 60-minute chart. Uh, it's very clear here that this is the level that we need to get through. It's like 4385-ish through 4,500. You can see the, the failure on the move up here the big sell-off, the big recovery, and this just looks like a, a big cup and handle, and this is the handle that we're in right now. It's a little bit steeper than you normally would like for a bottom, uh, but the reason for the bottom was, you know, Jerome Powell and stocks move. Stocks have been looking for any indication from him that they might be done raising interest rates, and he gave a little inkling uh, in the FOMC press conference last Wednesday, and the markets took it, ran with it, closed at the highs of the day, had a follow-up gap on Wednesday or on Thursday, and then another one on Friday. And now we're putting in this handle, and uh, what we're looking for is a move, a sustained move above this 4385 to 4400 uh, band of resistance right here uh, to trigger the next up move. And we go up through that. 
any pullback to that 4,400 level needs to hold, and that would set the stage for a continued higher move into uh, the end of the year. On the other hand, uh, if we break below the lows of this Friday gap up day, uh, that would be a big negative for the market. Um, I, I would say we could fill this gap down to the 4,300-ish area, the low 43s, but anywhere below there uh, would be a, a red flag right now. You know, yesterday was a little bit of a yellow flag, but it was the first distribution. And if you'd listen to the video, the reason was because they had trouble selling 30-year bonds. There wasn't a lot of demand for them. Uh, and that's tied to the, the beginning of some distrust, possibly in the massive budget deficits that we're seeing in the U.S., I mean, realistically, we've got no way to get ourselves out of this budget deficit. The good thing is we're the uh, cleanest dirty shirt as there's really no other place to invest either that isn't running massive deficits. So um, just from a pure technical standpoint, what we're looking for now is that break above 43.85 and a move through 4,400 to begin uh, the next leg higher. All right. That, that, now, folks, look at that chart right there that he showed up. So we are supple enough in our minds that we acknowledge and we understand that the market could go up from here or could go down from here. And we're not going to make forecast. We're just going to try to interpret the probabilities. Right now, it looks like it could be setting up to be bullish. I mean, I'd have to lean a little bit toward the bullish side, but it certainly could could go the other way. So, and by the way, last thing before we go, um, we do own some of those stocks that um, 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 we were mentioning. Connor was mentioning in the gap ups. Don, uh, we own Dueling. Which ones do we own? We own Deck, and we sold Deck, it today. Deck. And I'll talk. I'll talk why we sold it. Looks like a great chart. Why would we sell it? It looks uh, there's some proprietary stuff that just led us to lock in some profits. It's related to uh, an exhaustive study uh with the volume gaps higher and uh we booked our profits in it today and we may look to add to it on a pullback toward the high volume close uh but we don't give away all the secret sauce uh all the time but uh, we did book our gains in deckers all right well thanks don folks listen if you like what you heard please tell a friend tell a neighbor we're trying to be the most transparent uh, fiduciary advisor on the planet. You can just go up to the top right-hand corner and hit the subscribe button, put in your name and email address. And we're not going to hassle you, reach out, spam you, send you a bunch of stuff. But with that, you put your email address, you will get this podcast delivered to you every Saturday morning as soon as we get it out. Now, if you subscribe to the new YouTube channel, just go to YouTube and just type in Revere Asset, just Revere, and hit subscribe. Zach, our producer, will have this out by probably 1231-ish Central Time on Friday. So you'll get a couple, three, three and a half hours before the market even closes for you stock nerds. Um, also, next to that, and, and our daily market insight video, the team, Don, does a video every night the market is open, and a little 10, 15 minute video talking about the market, short-term, mid-term, long-term levels, and about the end of the stuff that we're doing, the actual moves we made in our own portfolio. Next to that is a contact us button. If you want to contact us and ask about a topic you'd like discussed on the show, or if you just want a complimentary portfolio view, we're happy to do that. You can email any of us with any questions at dan at revereasset.com, don at revereasset.com, michael, ted, or connor at revereasset.com.
or you can always, always, always call us old school at 855 Real Wealth. Folks, stay dry and have a happy, uh, have a great weekend. Be safe, and we'll talk to you next week on your money. Because it's not about how much you made in the markets, it's how much of that you can keep. Your Money Radio podcast covers general topics and investment ideas for research. It is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be investment advice. If you want or need investment advice, contact your own advisors or reach out to Revere Asset Management for individual investment advice. For more information, just go to revereasset.com.